Good evening. We are in our ninth shiur of the series on Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. And this brings us to a topic that really I always hope to avoid, but there's sometimes no choice because people like Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin just throw it out there and I have to cover it. I want to set some expectations. They say the difference between uh, the, the cause for disappointment is the par between expectations and what you actually get, your delivery. So I don't want anyone to think today that I'm going to give you a definitive answer as to who wrote the Zohar, or what is the place of Kabbalah in Jewish uh, literature or theology, or uh, its effects on halakha. There are enough shiurim and enough people more qualified than I to give shiurim, both on Kabbalah and those who are not fans of Kabbalah. Today I wish to view the conversations surrounding Kabbalah through the lens of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, who's bringing it as an example of major infighting in the Jewish community that has caused the Jewish community to split at least into two branches, if not more, uh, those who are proponents of Kabbalah and those who are opponents of Kabbalah. And therefore I wish to focus today not so much on the Kabbalah itself, but much more on the controversy surrounding the Kabbalah and everything else that comes along with it. Rabbinit, as I announced, I forgot my Keter Shem Tov at home, so I'm using one on the screen. That's okay, all the other books came. It's the most books I ever brought to Ashiel so far for this series. Um, we are on page 9 of the PDF, so if you click on either the classwork section, whatever classwork, classroom you're in, it should say Winter Series, click on it, there should be something titled Keter Shem Tov, uh, Volume 3, pages 1 to 30, or on the Zoom invitation itself, I believe we attached the PDF for today's Shi'u there as well, it should say Keter Shem Tov, uh, again, Volume 3, pages 1 to 30, do you see that? Yes, perfect. So Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is highlighting for us 12 different episodes in Jewish history. We've spoken about the kingdom of Yehuda versus the kingdom of Israel. We've spoken about the Shomonim, the Samaritans, and our history with them, fortunate and unfortunate. We've spoken about the Tzedukim, the Sadducees, the Essenes. We've spoken about the Perushim, which inevitably are an outcome of Jewish splintering is that also the Pirushim become a denomination in and of themselves. And then we find ourselves discussing last week the Karaim, the Kerites. Since I last discussed the Karaim with you, there's been even more research that I've done on that topic in Halavai that we had more time to discuss each one of these groups more than one Shi'u, but B'zad Hashem, today we'll be doing our best to reach the next the next part of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's writings, and let me pull that up in front of me right now. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes here, in Vav, see the bottom of page 9, Roman numeral 11. HaKabbalah, the Kabbalah, by the way, he writes it this way because Kabbalah, like other Jewish words, is one that has been appropriated by a particular movement in Judaism. 
And when we say Kabbalah in traditional Judaism, it doesn't mean what Kabbalah means today in the eyes of a modern Jew. Kind of like Chasidut. Chasidut used to mean something in Judaism. And then other people appropriated that word. And now Chasidim, you think fuzzy hats in Brooklyn. Oh, you might think from that. Or uh, Musal. People say, oh, study Musal. Do you have to study Musal? Musal is the study of Jewish ethics as we've been doing for generations. There was a certain movement that came along and appropriated this word, Musal, gave it its own meaning, its own life, its own politics, its own everything. And now when you say Musal, you might, you know, you're in a room of Hasidim, you throw out the word Musal, they get triggered all of a sudden, they're thinking, Gaona Vilna, Rabbi Israel Salanter, Chavetz You opened a can of worms, you had no intention uh, to open at all. The same is true with, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the yeshiva world, the Torah world, people always, they take these words for themselves, and all of a sudden you're left not sure how to define terms that we've always had one definition for. So here, Rabbi Shemdov Gagin writes Kabbalah, because he's not referring to the word Kabbalah in the sense of the tradition that we receive from Moshe Rabbeinu. Midivrei Kabbalah is referring to the oral law of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's not referring to that Kabbalah. He writes a Kabbalah, the birth of modern Kabbalah. Or, I don't know if modern is the right word, but the new understanding of Kabbalah. From the moment of its birth, and it's spreading out into the Jewish people. Because of this Kabbalah, the camp of the sages of Israel has been divided into two. Those Chachamim who are Chachamim of Talmud, and those Chachamim who are Chachamim of Sod. By the way, these terms are still used. I was once in a Chabad environment, and they used these words. Nigle and Nistar. They have Nigle and Nistar. Those who are familiar with the Torah, the revealed Torah and the hidden Torah, and almost with a lot of disdain towards those who involve themselves only in the unfortunate Torah of Nigle, which would include you know, the Tanakh and the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Rambam and Shulchan Aruch and everything else that would come after that. Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin continues. They were concerned that this uh, divine research, this involvement in divine research, philosophy, will swallow up the study of the Talmud and the Poskim. Now that's an interesting way to simplify this argument, but that's how Mishnah Tov writes it. From the earlier rabbis who had something to complain about the Kabbalah, and they call him Rabbi Moshe Mitaku. And when the Zohar began spreading out into the world, a number of the Torah sages rose up against it. Because they found it to be in contradiction with some halachot of the Talmud. And when the Zohar began being distributed by print, there were a number of rabbis that stood up and demanded that the Zohar be uh, taken off the shelves and put into Geniza. It should be buried and it shouldn't be allowed to be spread 
in that fashion. Before we get any further, let's just stop and say that Kabbalah itself is not a group of homogenous thinkers or people. It's not even over one period of time. Yes, you may be familiar perhaps with the Zohar. The Zohar is not Kabbalah. Zohar is part of Kabbalah to the Mekubalim. It's not the Kabbalah. There were Mekubalim before the Zohar, or not necessarily before, but who didn't accept all ideas of the Zohar. There are Mekubalim after the Zohar. There are different periods of Mekubalim. Different sages and scholars have broken up the Kabbalists into different camps. The Hasidim have their own breakup of these camps. The Mekubalim have their own breakup of these camps. Today I'm not here to give you everything you need to know about this topic. That's for you to do research on yourself. But to touch on the moments of controversy, the moments of dispute in Jewish history that lead to the Jewish people being so divided surrounding this topic. I think, <laughs> I know that's why I only have one class on Hasidut planned for the future. Um, I think I saw that there are some 40,000 or 14,000, I'm going to top of my head, sects of Christianity. So uh, Hasidim are just coming to a close second to that one. Uh, but they're coming, they've come pretty close. Every Rebbe who's born has 10 kids. Every one of those 10 kids comes a Rebbe on his own right. They all split up at the Omar Hasidiyot that goes on for a few hundred years. And, you know, today you have what you have. Everybody's a grand rabbi of something. Everybody except for me. Everybody else is a grand rabbi of somewhere. Admor of this, Admor of that. That's okay. We'll get there. But <clears throat> Let's talk about Kabbalah. Has anyone here studied Kabbalah before? Some of you are waving your hands at me. Okay, I'm going to say that some of you have dabbled in Kabbalah. Anybody here a Kabbalist in residence before I make a fool out of myself? Okay, anybody here an anti-Kabbalist? They're afraid to raise their hands. You know what happened the last time people said they were anti-Kabbalist? Uh, okay, we'll just, uh, we'll take it as it goes. Margaret Thatcher once said, and by the way, I don't know much about Margaret Thatcher aside from that. She once said, so don't, don't say, oh, he took a political stand. I don't know anything more. Margaret Thatcher once said, the danger of standing in the middle of the road is that you get hit by cars going in both directions. And I think that's always going to be a danger. In fact, I have stayed notoriously in the middle of the road on this topic, and I plan to do so today as well. That's made many people upset. Many of my people who are friends on the Kabbalistic side of the world and those who are not, uh, both of them will consider me to be someone standing in the middle. Let me tell you a Hasidic story. If uh, Hugo already mentioned a Hasidic story, so we'll start with the Hasidic story. They say there was, uh, you know, the famous uh, first rabbi of Lubavitch, Alav Shalom, Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi. He was printing a sidu. And if you ever prayed with Chabadniks in your life, you'll know that on Friday night, right before they say the Amidah, they have this paragraph, Shamu Bnei Israel Shabbat. That's what we say it also. Most people say it, except for them. It's written in their Sidu and they don't say it. So it's there, but they have a custom not to say it. They say the story goes that Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi was printing his Sidu and he was planning to omit this paragraph. He didn't feel that it needed to be said on Friday night for whatever reasons. And he was approached by Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, who somehow they're married into each other. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev told him, Do you know? What happens in Shamaim when the Jewish people say, Shabbat, 
there are angels parading through the streets of Shamayim, and now they're singing and they're 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 parading. You're skipping on this parade. You have to say this. And Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Lali told him, you know, it's a wonderful thing the angels are parading, but I don't feel like I have to attend every parade. And he ended up putting that paragraph in his sidu, but they don't say it. I feel like that attitude is a healthy one to adopt sometimes. You don't have to attend every parade. So many people want to parade you around different things. You don't have to be at every parade. Everybody has a stanza. If this is something that is passionate to you and it's a topic that you care about, you know, fine, then that should be your parade. But you don't have to be at every parade. A while ago I was asked to get involved in a startup Jewish initiative. They wanted me to be the rabbi of that, of that group of rabbis who would issue ultimately the halachic rulings for that group. I said, well, but I appreciate that honor very much. But it's just not for me. This is not my parade. I, I didn't come to dance it up. It will undermine the things that I do believe I came to the world to do. This topic, at least for this point in my life, is, is pretty much the same. Let's talk about Kabbalah in the Torah. So you won't find references to Kabbalah. And I don't like the word mysticism or esoteric literature. All these words have other meanings to them. I'm just going to say Kabbalah. You won't find Kabbalah inside of the Torah. You also won't find Kabbalah in the rest of the Nevi Muktuvim. What you will find, though, are two major elements in the Tanakh, both in the Torah and in the Nevi'im, which form a basis for much of what Kabbalah is going to discuss later. Does anybody know the two passages of the Torah that I'm talking about? Very good. So Maaseh Merkava, the Nevi'im, Yechezkel's chariots that he discusses. This is Maaseh Merkava. What else? Very good. So if you read the Rambam, uh, he, the Rambam explains quite clearly that there are two different studies of there. I'm going to use it, esoteric studies. One of them is Maaseh Bereshit, the creation of the world, and one is Maaseh Merkava. And the Rambam goes to list his understanding of, of, and he doesn't explain it spelled out, but what it would mean to get involved in those things. Now, you therefore find that even in the Talmud, already in the Talmud, you find that different rabbis are discussing secrets of Hashem's chariot and secrets of the creation of the world. And so if you would ask them the Kubalim, where do they begin? They begin in Sefer Bereshit. Their movement begins in the understanding of the creation of the world and understanding the chariots. Many would argue, but we see discussion of things that are not revealed to the eye. We're reading the book of Bereshit and then the prophecies of Yechezkel. This Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava, obviously, all Jewish groups who study Torah and believe in the Torah believe are important. The question is not whether Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava have in them deep or more esoteric understandings, rather whether the Kabbalah that is taught today has anything to do with our original rabbis, original understandings of those two episodes in the Tanakh. The real book of Kabbalah that we find, the first book of Kabbalah that comes on the Jewish scene, is a book called Sefer Yitzira. Have you heard of Sefer Yitzira before? There is an English translation that goes around, I think, by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. I've never read it, but it, you know that was an interesting time in Jewish history when Rabbi Arya Kaplan was translating many of these books into English. We don't actually know 
<coughs> when Sefer Yitzhak was written. Some say it was written by Adam HaRishon, the first man. Some say it was written by Avraham Avinu. Some say it was written... Uh, we don't know exactly who wrote it. All we know is that it shows up on the Jewish scene. And it doesn't actually deal with the Maaseh and Merkava as much as Sefer Yitzhak, like you hear, the book of creation, it deals with creation. It's not a long book. It's quite a short book compared to a book like the Zohar, let's say. But essentially, this sets the wheels in motion of study of something called the Sefer Yitzhak. It deals a lot with 10 Sfirot. It deals a lot with the Hebrew alphabet, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and what those mean. Already you can see in the writings of some Rishonim, like the Rambam, that they're highly uncomfortable with this play on letters and all the things that come out of this, but we didn't get that far yet. I would say that Sefer Yitzhira is pretty much the first work of Kabbalah in what I'm referring to as the movement of Kabbalah. After that, it kind of transitions over to a book that we call Sefer HaBahir. Have you heard of the Sefer HaBahir before? Sefer HaBahir, otherwise known not as the book of creation, but the book of, um, of uh, brightness. Bahir is something that's bright, maybe even clear. It's also short, it's also cryptic, like the Sefer Yitzirah, so it's not as eloquent or as long as the Zohar. But this now expands on this concept of ten Sefirot. Have you heard of... Can you hear me now? Of ten Sefirot. And essentially these two books, Sefer Yitzirah and Sefer HaBahir, create the foundation, at least conceptually, of what is going to become the Sefer HaZohar. <clears throat> Before I get to the Sefer HaZohar, actually, why don't I just jump straight into the Sefer HaZohar? Uh, yeah. uh, uh, okay, Th throw the Hechalot in here also. See, the Hechalot are, are similar to the Zohar. Oh, I was hoping to skip Hechalot. Okay, the Hechalot, and you could argue Sefer Yitzhak, Sefer Bahir, Hechalot, it all comes together as a package. Essentially, these are works that are written most likely, don't accuse me now of being a heretic. So if you're a Mekubal, they're very early works of Kabbalah. Um, and if you're not a Mekubal, so these works are works that were written, written later in Jewish history, but attributed to earlier personalities in Jewish history. So if you want exactly which one's which, uh, they claim that Sefer Abahir was written in the first century by Rabbi Nechemiah ben Akane. So, Akana, that's what they claim. And then you have the famous story of the four who entered the Pardes. Uh, that's Rabbi Akiva and his friends. So that has a tremendous amount of Kabbalistic significance there. Um, this brings us also to the Zohar. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And the attribution of the Zohar to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Sefer Zohar, the book of radiation, the book of light, illumination, is probably the most important book to Mukubalim today. If I would say, I think that's the most important book to Mukubalim today. It shows up on the Jewish scene in the 1200s. Brought to the Jewish people by a rabbi named Rabbi Moshe de Leon. Rabbi Moshe de Leon is a Spanish rabbi who claims, at least according to the Mekubalim, to have discovered this ancient Jewish book of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And it was hidden among the Goyim, and the, the, there's a whole legend how he got the book. Finally he got the book, and now he's publishing it, and he's spreading it to the whole Jewish world. 
Not everyone agrees with that story. Of course, those who are not Mekubalim don't agree with that story. You have to imagine how this works in Jewish history. So you have a Tanakh, a Tanakh, a Mishnah, a Talmud. These are works that have been passed down, rabbi to student, rabbi to student, rabbi to student, Jewish people, one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Everyone knows about them. Everyone has seen them. Everyone has heard them. All of a sudden, somebody shows up and tells you, I have a book. It's 1200s now. I have a book. It's centuries old. You've never seen it before. You've never studied it before. It's going to contribute new ideas to the Jewish people that you've never heard of before either. And this book somehow takes off. But you can imagine that when someone, think about trying to start a, not a new minhag, just a, a simple minhag in the Jewish community, how you'd be attacked. You can imagine the Rabbi Moshe de Leon's movement of bringing the Zohar out into the world caused for tremendous controversy. I, I want to deal with the controversy in just a moment. I first want to tell you what the Zohar is all about. So the Zohar really expands on this concept of the ten Sivirot. The Zohar really gets involved in what they call the Etz Chaim, the tree of life. And if you've ever hung around Mekubalim long enough to hear about Etz Chaim, if you look in certain Sephardic Sidurim, there's also little entrances in the beginning of Shacharit that mention the different Sefirot, and, and this side, and that side, and the right, and the left, and Chesed, and Gvura, and Tiferet, and Yisod, and all, and Netzach, and all of these different, there's the crown, there's the Keter, and there's different uh, Sefirot that make up this divine being. Essentially, the Etzach is dealing with the buildup of the divine body, if you could suggest such a thing. Of course, the Mekubalim are very careful to consistently tell you, they don't believe that a Kadosh Baruch has a body, but this is what a Kadosh body is made up of. There's also a concept called Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is the method in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, according to the Zohar, the author of the Zohar. According to this, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Tzimtzem et atzmo. He contracted himself. And in this place, which there was no longer HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he created the world. And then he brought himself back into that space. And then what happened? Does anyone know that happens after HaKadosh Baruch Hu returns his presence to this void of space where he created the world? This is very important for understanding Hasidut and everything Hasidim try to do. What happens to the vessels? The vessels. Tell me about vessels. Very good. The vessels break. There's a shvirat kelim of sorts, and these vessels break, and sparks of holiness fly everywhere. This is going to lead the Ariza later on to start dealing with us about uh, gathering the sparks and collecting sparks and bringing the redemption, but we didn't get to that Ariza yet. Right now, we're still dealing with the Zohar itself. could be that the whole concept of Tzimtzum is really found by that result, not by the Zohar. Uh, some things the Zohar brings about, I told you, it brings about some new ideas and some new concepts that some consider to be problematic. So for example, uh, the Zohar talks about different Sfirot, namely Yisod and Malchut. Uh, Yisod and Malchut, in a very superficial level in the understanding of the Zohar, is referring to the reproductive organs of male and female that are inherent to the divine. There's a lot of conversation on eroticism and sexuality in Kabbalistic literature. This obviously puts off many other chachamim who are abhorred. It's one thing to give a Kadosh a body, it's another thing to start attributing all kinds of uh, human sexual concepts to the creator of the universe. Um, Kabbalah in the Zohar itself also starts to talk about how human beings are in control of much of the way the world works. 
everything that happens above is triggered by things that happen below. Concepts like awakening love and, and actions down below affecting realms up high. On one hand, it, it empowers people. It's a certain feeling of the things that I do matter. And I think that Hasid, Hasidic literature has taken a lot of this. This um, Everything you do means something to the creator of the universe. And every Avelah you do can destroy a universe. Every mitzvah you do. And it, it puts a lot of uh, power in the hands of people. On the flip side of that, though, is a very awkward understanding of the world in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu almost needs us. And I'm not telling you that's what the Mekubalim believe, but there was the, the how much can I, a, a human being, affect really what is going on in the divine? And then there's lastly the concept of tikkun. So tikkun, let's put aside the modern day tikkun olam mentality. I'm not talking about recycling you know, uh, cans and protecting the oceans in Japan. I'm talking here about tikkun in the realm of Kabbalah, which is that certain things in the world are broken and they need to be fixed. And the only way to fix them is by doing certain spiritual things that fix the world. And ultimately, this is putting the seeds already into the world of the Mashiach. And what it means by fixing is going to bring about the Mashiach. And that brings us to the Arizal. The Arizal is the one who, after the Zohar spreads into the world, so whether or not there was opposition, the Zohar ends up spreading around pretty much everywhere, to all Jewish communities in different places. And by the time the 16th century comes around, you have Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. Rabbi Yitzchak Luria is an Ashkenazi and Sephardic rabbi, in the sense that his father is Ashkenazi, his mother is Sephardic, he himself straddles both those worlds quite interestingly, born in Eretz Yisrael, then he goes down to Egypt where he studies by his Sephardic uncle. Ultimately, he comes back to Eretz Yisrael and begins to spread the Zohar in mass. You should know, even among the Mekubalim, there's what they call uh, Lurianic Zohar and non-Lurianic Zohar. There's the Zohar of the Ariza, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, and there's the Zohar that has you know, the understanding of Kabbalah that's not Lurianic. There are Mekubalim who opposed the understanding of the Arizal on Kabbalah. Nonetheless, you can suffice to say that almost anyone that you deal with today that is involved in Kabbalah is somehow connected to the Arizal. If the Zohar was popular, the Arizal blew Kabbalah out of the water. And he was single-handedly responsible for bringing the teachings of uh, his understanding of Kabbalah out to the whole world. The Arizal didn't just involve himself in what the Zohar said, but he added concepts to Kabbalah. Very interestingly to his opponents, uh, the Arizal added things that he claims to have heard from spirits and other worlds and the deceased tzaddikim of previous generations and that already rubbed certain people the wrong way, but ultimately the Arizal records those things, not so much in writing, but by teaching them to his students. The main student of the Arizal is famously known as the Maharchu. Who's the Maharchu? Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital was the main student of the Arizal, by the way, that's also under controversy, but if you are a Mekubah from Rav Chaim Vital's lineage, then Rabbi Chaim Vital maybe spent two years of his life studying Kabbalah by the Arizal. But essentially, almost every work of Kabbalah that we have that's attributed to the Arizal was written by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Michilah, what I mentioned about Tzimtzum earlier, 
The whole concept of Tintum is really found in the writings of the Arizal. I, I jumped the gun when I told you about the Zohar. Uh, the Arizal's understanding of the Zohar brings about this whole concept of Tintum to the Jewish people. Uh, the Arizal also brings about this idea called Shechinta Begaluta. The Shechinta Begaluta means that the, not only are the Jewish people in exile, but the Shekhinah, the divine providence, is in exile with us. And you can imagine in a generation, it's post the expulsion from Spain, people are returning back to Eretz Israel. The messianic fervor is high. Mari Berav is starting a Sanhedrin. Uh, Maran Rabbi Yosef Cairo is busy putting together a code of Jewish law for all the Jewish people. Uh, you have Mekubalim in the fields, Rabbi Shalom HaLevi Al-Kavetz, Rabbi Eliezer Azikri, they're out there singing songs, welcoming the Shekhinah. And here comes Dariza with a redemptive type of Kabbalah that is telling people, we can do what it takes to bring about the redemption. This catches on even more. And essentially there's a combination of Tikkun that we mentioned earlier. There's Gilgul, there's reincarnations that start to come into this conversation here. Reincarnations is a way to fix people, to uplift sparks, again bringing about a redemption. And almost in the sense that if it's not for the Arizal and his teachings being distributed to the Jewish community, it could be that we will never have a redemption. This begins to become the mentality of the Mekubalim. If I can continue Jewish history, this Kabbalistic push for the redemption, for bringing about the redemption, ultimately leads to a pitfall, which is Shabtai Tzvi, who we discussed recently uh, on Tu Bishvat, the false Mashiach of Turkey. We're actually going to have a whole shoe on him in just a few weeks because Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes about him as one of the 12 breaches in the wall of Israel. After Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, many Jews become disenchanted. This creates a void. A spiritual void, at least in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which is filled quite quickly by a man known as Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov comes along and again begins to teach Kabbalah in mass to the people. Uh, he creates his entire movement of Hasidut, uh, and we'll discuss them too because Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin has an entry on Hasidim and the Mitnagdim as well, so I don't want to talk too much about them. Uh, and last but not least, you have what we'll call modern Kabbalah. So whatever modern Kabbalah movements and if it's, I don't know that it's wise to share names, but the type of Kabbalah that Hollywood likes or the celebrities like and that this, uh, these, these groups are involved in, essentially as a world starts to get more into this kind of stuff, and there's all across the board, not just in the Jewish community, a desire for esoteric things, for mystical things. So this is going to continue being a popular thing. You know, it's actually quite interesting, and I can't tell you why or how, but I can tell you that if you look around the Jewish community today, even places that yesterday were not Kabbalistic strongholds, you're going to find books of Kabbalah, books of Hasidut. Already when I was leaving the yeshiva in Baltimore, books of Hasidut started creeping into the yeshivot. Already in the religious Zionist community, you have neo-Hasidic yeshivot. They're kind of like the religious Zionists were also Hasidim. You have this whole mystical revolution that takes over the Jewish community. And that brings us to a place of so what exactly happened while all of these developments were taking place? What did Kabbalah cause? What kind of infighting happened in the Jewish community because of it? And now that I've given you the overview of what it looked like from the beginning of when Sefer Yitzirah came out and the other books we mentioned like the Hechalot or the Sefer Bahir or the Sefer Zohar and how those rolled and quickly took over the Jewish community by storm, you can imagine that there are Chachamim who were always opposed to this type of a study of Torah in the Jewish community, or maybe they wouldn't even consider Torah. And because of this, 
that in every generation where Kabbalah started having a comeback or a renaissance of sorts, those who opposed Kabbalah also had a renaissance and a comeback of sorts. And we're going to zoom in on a few of those episodes. With your permission, I would like to start with... Who would I like to start with? Let's talk about the, the Rambam. Yeah, let's, talk, let's start with the Rambam. I have here a bibliography of some 315 sources in which the Rambam is quoted or denigrated by Mekubalim and the opposite, in which the Kabbalah or the Mekubalim are denigrated by those who are anti-Mekubalim. Um, I don't have good words for either of them. I don't like the divide of mystics versus rationalists. I don't think it's fair to dub the Rambam a rationalist, as popular as that word is today, and people love that word. I think it's a very superficial understanding. In general, the West has always tried to paint the Rambam as some Aristotelian Greek sage that somehow ended up in the Jewish people. Uh, I think it does a disservice to Aristotle, but more importantly to the Rambam. Uh, just because the Rambam quotes someone does not mean that, that who, that's who the Rambam is. Uh, who knows who influenced who? It's not my conversation, but ultimately, these wars surrounding what you might call, if you want to call them Maimonideans, at least in this generation, when I say Maimonideans, there are Chachamim before Maimonides who count as Maimonideans. Give me an example of a Chacham that comes before the Rambam, who we could already call him a Maimonidean, and don't tell me Maimon, the father of the Rambam. That doesn't count. Very good. Hafsad Yagon, the Rasag who is the author of Emunot Videot. By the way, a beautiful commentary also on the Torah. Very brief, very concise, underappreciated. Rav Sadi Gaon. is before the Rambam. Yet perhaps if you were to consider where does this Maimonidean tradition actually start to be written down, it's Rav Sadi His writings are, the Rambam essentially is continuing a school of thought that already exists. You can argue uh, Rav Bachia, uh, not the Kabbalistic commentary in the Chumash, but Rabbeinu Bachia, which one? Chovat Levavot, very good. Chovat uh, Levavot, he's also, who else, somebody else in that tradition going forward? Okay, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Rambam, his son. Uh, Jordan, you said something? The Rif, okay, so that's on the halachic side already. If I'm going to talk about Emunot, people love to pit Rabbi Udah against the Rambam. It's almost like a game. How much can we pit the Kuzari against the Moinavuchim? By the way, I'm guilty also in my younger years of teaching uh, these topics. If you don't learn them well, it seems that there's a lot of contradiction there. Ribiuda Levi, at least by the Maimonideans, was considered one of the Chachamim who really dealt with things in a Maimonidean fashion. Sefer uh, Kuzari is one of the most studied works by my rabbi teacher, Arav Peretz. Is a, you know, even the Gaon of Vilna said about the Kuzari, that this book is Emunat Israel. Everything you need to know about the Jewish people, everything that we believe is found in the book Kuzari. It's a tragedy to me that nobody studies Sefer Kuzari. I mean nobody. Of course people study it, but schools. They start teaching it in school. People should know what our Chachamim believe. You want to say that Moreno Vuchim is tough, it's complicated, it's difficult. So start with the Kuzari. Today it's not only do people not study Kuzari, but it's already become controversial to study Kuzari. Uh, Peretz was once in a Bet Yaakov school, a Sephardic Bet Yaakov school, where he was asked to give a shiur and he mentioned something for the Kuzari and the principal stopped him in the middle of the speech and said, please go home, we don't quote that here. This is something unfortunately that exists in the world. 
If you want to get a truer or deeper understanding of the controversy between the Mekubalim and the non-Mekubalim of that generation, uh, I highly recommend two pieces by Chacham Fa'ur, Allah Shalom. The, the first, maybe an entry piece, it's not entry level at all, but it's maybe a nice place to start, is the essay, Anti-Maimonidean Demons by Chacham Hosei Fa'ur. And then second to that uh, is going to be a chapter in his book, Horizontal Society, uh, which is titled The Folly of Israel. Uh, you, know, you normally should read books from the beginning, right? But if, even if you wanted just to read this chapter in the book, it would be worth it. If I can, let me just read to you a little bit of what uh, we mentioned the Rashba, right? Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin mentions the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet. The Rashba who lives from 1235 to 1310. He pronounced a ban against the Rambam in Barcelona on July 26, 1305. And in that ban he writes, and I'm reading the translation of Chacham Faur, Go into the distant lands where the Canaanim, meaning the Christians, and all the Gentiles live. They would condemn the Maimonideans as heretics, even for a single heresy and abomination that they had written in their books. And they would tie them up in vine branches and incinerate them until they turn into ashes. The Rajbah is telling you, not only is the Rambam and his kind, not only are they not great Tamarich Chamin, but even the Goyim, which is a fascinating way to judge a Torah scholar by the Christians. Even the Christians, if they were to hear the abominations that the Rambam's camp mentions, they would tie them up and burn them themselves. And unfortunately, this cult of violence is not, uh, it's not alone. You find here that essentially these anti-Maimonidean rabbis went along to the non-Jewish authorities and to ask them to pass judgment on other Jewish works, meaning the writings of the Rambam. Rabbeinu Yonah first goes to the Franciscans, and when it doesn't work, he goes to the Dominicans. And he implores them with the following words. Look, most of our people are heretics and unbelievers. Why are most of the Jews... Who is he going? He's going to the church. He's telling the church that most of the Jews are heretics and non-believers. Because they were duped by Rabbi Moshe of Egypt, who wrote heretical books. I mean, most of the Jews are kofrim. They are heretics because they were duped by the Rambam. You exterminate your heretics. Exterminate ours too. This is a request from the Catholic Church to go on a hunt against Jewish Tamadechamim and to kill them, just like you would kill any Christian non believers. The anti Maimonideans were successful, and by their command, they made a large fireplace and proceeded to burn the Rambam's writings. It's the famous burning of the Rambam's writings that happened there, but it's not so long. Once Jewish people start to get people to burn books, not so long later in our history that the Christians also burn our Talmud. Because once we're burning books, let's burn all the books. Why only burn some people's books? Let's burn all the Jews' writings. These wars are quite ugly. And when you read them, you might have a lot of... Um, if you, well, if you care, you'll have crises of faith. The see Chachamim that are otherwise quoted in good standing by the Jewish community. But then when you read about the things they said or the things they did, you should hear the students, the Maimonideans of the generation, the Tamil Chachamim saying, what did we do wrong? 
We're learning the Torah the way the Torah was always taught to us. So we didn't accept the new Kabbalah that's coming from southern France or northern Spain. And you should know in general, Spain is a very divided country. Spain is not a homogenous group of people. Even among the Chachamim, the Chachamim of Catalonia and the Chachamim of, of Andalusia. And these, call them southern Sephardim. They're saying, why do we have to accept everything coming out of France? Why do we have to accept all of these teachings that are coming there? And when they're not willing to accept things, the first thing that happens after that is violence. Violence. You don't have the right to defy the sages of the Kabbalah. And this creates one of the worst disasters we've ever seen in Jewish history. There's a lot of conversations surrounding a book titled Shi'ul Koma. Shi'ul Koma is an early Kabbalistic work uh, which attempts to describe the divine body. You can find an English version online. Probably if you Wikipedia it, there's a free, a free source uh, version of Shi'ur Koma. It seems that there are some early writings of the Rambam where he takes his book a little seriously, later on in his life where he rejects it. Rabbi Yosef Kapach was adamant that the Rambam denounces his book entirely. Other rabbis, not so sure. This period of Jewish history was quite ugly. But let's talk about the Zohar because the Zohar is where things start to get quite exciting. I have a book in front of me now. Let's read to you. There was a Chacham. His name was Rabbi Tzchak Demin Akko. Otherwise known as Rabbi Isaac of Akko. You'll find this passage in the Sefer Ayuchasin of Rabbi Avraham Zakuto. Have you heard of Rabbi Avraham Zakuto? Who's Rabbi Avraham Zakuto? Very good, he was an astronomer. He was a professor in one of the universities in Spain. He was the engineer of many of the uh, instruments that Christopher Columbus used to discover America. He ended up having to flee for his life from Spain, but was one of our great Chachamim. He wrote a book of lineage. Today this book has been translated into English. It's pretty well done, aside from the fact that it has no index or table of contents. So good luck trying to find anything inside of it. But aside from that, uh, the book has been, they did a very good job in translating it to English. And the Beit Minako, but there's a Zagut crater on the moon. They claim, I'm not an expert in this, but they claim that the Zagut crater is named after Rabbi Avraham Zakuto. In some editions of Sevi Chassin, these paragraphs are omitted, but let me just read to you a little bit. Says Rabbi Avram Zakuton, just so that I can make sure that this doesn't get forgotten from the Jewish people, let me write down that which I found written that Rabbi Yitzchak of Akko, who was a student of the Rashban, he himself was a Mekubal. He went to go research the book of the Zohar. That it had tremendous secrets in it. He wanted to go figure out its origin. He says the following, Rabbi Yitzchak Minako. I asked those students of the Zohar who were holding copies of the book of the Zohar, where do you have this book from? And I couldn't find, none of them gave me a straight answer. Some say that uh, the Ramban founded an Eretz Israel and he sent it to Catalonia. And the winds brought it to Aragon. And that's how Rabbi Moshe de Leon got a copy from the Ramban to Catalonia, Catalonia to Aragon, Aragon to Rabbi Moshe de Leon. 
ויש אומרים שמעולם לא היה חיבור של רשב"י, some say that it was never written by רשב"י, רבי שמעון בר יוחאי, שרק שרבי משה ידע שם שם הכותב. ובכוחו יכתוב דברים מופלאים. some say no, רבי משה דליון was a Kabbalist, and he knew special names of Hashem that helped him write such an amazing work. ולמען ייקח בהם מכירה, ואצל הפיפל הוא יפה יותר כסף לבוק, היה תולה עצמו באילן גדול שהוא רבי שמעון בר יוחאי ורבי אלעזר בנו וחבריו. He decided to attribute the book to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, so that the book would become more popular. And he comes to the city, and I found Rabbi Moshe de Leon. And Rabbi Moshe de Leon swore to me, that the book of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is in his home. Meaning, he swears, very interesting, here if you're an anti-Kabbalist, you're going to see deception. He doesn't swear that the Zohar, which was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, is in his home. Rather, he swears that the book that is called the Book of Rashbi is in his home. Uvashuv leveto, met Rabbi Moshe, v'avod ir avila v'emtsa sham chamzaken, v'shmor b'div ravan, v'emtsa chen b'na v'ashbiya olemor im haya odea mitut sever zohar im haya emet olo. And he said he found somebody else who was uh, familiar with Rabbi Moshe Dion and said, swear to me, is the Zohar true or not? He said he was certain that Rabbi Moshe Dion was fabricating the work called the Zohar. had a profession in which he would write all kinds of esoteric writings for wealthy people and they would pay him a lot of gold and silver. And this is the way in which Rabbi Moshe de Leon wrote his books. He ends up finding the wife of Rabbi Moshe de Leon. The wife of Rabbi Moshe de Leon swears that her husband did not find any manuscript because he wanted to see the manuscript. And she claims, there is no manuscript of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. My husband wrote these works and attributed them to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And the paragraphs go on and on and on. Whether you believe the widow of Rabbi Moshe de Leon, you don't believe the widow of Rabbi Moshe de Leon, you already find that in the generation of the Rashba, there's critique. How do we know that the book of the Zohar is a real book in the first place? In the Shut Arivash, the writings of the Rishonim, we have recorded that the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, told his student, the Rivash, that the Ramban tried too hard to believe in this Kabbalah. And the Rivash, when he ends off his Teshuvah, he writes, said, and about the Sefirot themselves, whether the Sefirot are real or not, he said, you should only trust the real Mekubal, and even then, I'm not sure. There's a famous Chacham, Eliyahu del Medigo. He also has his doubts about the Zohar, and things that are brought about in the Zohar. Rebbe Yahu Mizrahi, Darem. And that brings us perhaps to some more recent generations where things are awakened again because as much as earlier rabbis may have tried to protest and the Maimonideans of sorts may have tried to stay away while they were fighting this fight, Kabbalah spread out to the whole world. And that leaves everyone in a place where sometimes Kabbalah becomes so strong 
that some of these rabbis begin to rear their heads and fight the fight against Kabbalah as well. Now the Rambam, just before I go further, the Rambam, did the Rambam know about Kabbalah or not? This type of Kabbalah. I think it's obvious to any reader of the Rambam that the Rambam is not a Mekuba. Okay, let's just, let's be honest for a moment. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Rabbi Yosef Kapach once said that everybody looks at the Rambam, it's a mirror. The Ram, everyone sees themselves in the Rambam. Everybody wants the Rambam to be on their team. He said very few people though actually read the Rambam for what he's saying or what he believes and not what the Rambam is believing according to what they want him to believe. I got a book recently in the mail on Morin Vuchim. I don't want to tell you which rabbi wrote it. In an introduction to this book, rabbi wrote it now. This rabbi writes, there are three opinions as to whether or not the Rambam saw the Zohar. And he says, the giants of the Hasidim, they say that the Rambam was a Mekubal and that he saw the Zohar, and he mentions it in Hasidut Chabad. If you look in the Sichot of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, he says that the Rambam was, and I quote, the Rambam Haya Mekubal Gadol was a giant Kabbalist. And the only reason the Rambam never spoke about Kabbalah was because it was too dangerous of a time to teach the world yet Kabbalah. The Rebbe of Kamarna, he writes that even though the Ramban may not have seen the Zohar, for sure the Rambam saw the Zohar. I want to attribute that to a mistake because for sure that's the other way around. And then the Ishbitzer Rebbe, the Bet Yaakov of Ishbitz, he says that after reading the Moren Vuchim, he's convinced that the Rambam had the true Kabbalah. But like I said, anybody who reads the Rambam and not only sees lack of mention of Kabbalah and the Rambam, but sees ideas that the Rambam shares that are in direct contradiction with things that are written in Kabbalah. Uh, the Arizal mentions, for example, that the Rambam and the Ramban belong to two different sides of the spiritual dimensions and that for whatever reason, the Rambam's soul was unable to grasp the secrets of Kabbalah. And this leads to Rav Kook to try to explain this by saying that there's a logical approach to Torah and a spiritual approach to Torah. And the Rambam, his soul was unable to reach that part of the understandings of Judaism. Ratzvi Huda Kook, the son of Rabbi Kook Sr., was of the opinion that even though the Rambam never saw Kabbalah, he reached all the correct conclusions because his soul was so refined and he worked so hard to get to that place that he was able to understand what the Mekubalim only later in history would reveal. But when I saw this book, I stopped reading the book. But I got very disappointed. I mean, how am I supposed to trust somebody who reads the Moren Vuchim if they're reading the Moren Vuchim thinking that the Rambam was a Mekubal? Now, it's not the only one. Like I told you, I have a whole bibliography here of hundreds and hundreds of sources trying to paint the Rambam and Mekubal here because of something he said in Masakh Makot or something the Rambam said over there which is Jesse Mekubal. Uh, Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia, the famous Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia, he's the father of what they call prophetic Kabbalah as opposed to Lurianic Kabbalah. Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia said a very powerful statement. He said that these Kabbalists, he was a Kabbalist himself, he said these Kabbalists, the new type of Kabbalists are worse than the Christians. The Christians divide God into three parts and the Kabbalists divide him into ten parts. Ultimately that led to a whole war against him as well, but uh, you see that even in the camp of Kabbalah, not everybody was comfortable with the things that were being said in the name of Kabbalah. I was going to tell you about the Rambam, people saying about the Rambam. Rabbi Avam Abu Lafia wrote comments on certain elements of the Rambam's writings trying to show how the Rambam really understood Kabbalah or he didn't. 
Really, again, though, you have to come back to the place of if you're being honest and intellectually honest, I don't think you can get away with trying to convince anybody serious that the Rambam himself was a Mikubal, but, you know, I've seen people try to convince people all kinds of things, so I'm not going to tell you that you cannot do it. Things get more exciting a little bit later in history. There's a famous Tamikhacham. He's known as the Ribiuda Ariyah of Modena. Have you ever heard of him? Sometimes they know him Rabbi Leon of Modena. Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh of Modena is a fascinating Chacham. If you have an En Yaakov at home, you've studied En Yaakov, he has a commentary on En Yaakov that's printed in probably every En Yaakov that you may ever see. Uh, they wrote a biography. He wrote an autobiography about himself. Some tragic things about his life. They translated into English. It's called... Um, Leon Modena's Life of Judah, an autobiography of a 17th century Venetian rabbi. Uh, you can purchase this book. It's, a, it's an actual translation of his Hebrew writing. And it's, it's fascinating and tragic all at the same time. Rebiudah de Modena was uh, an Italian rabbi, was such a famous speaker that even non-Jewish clergy and royalty would come to his Bedaknesia to hear him give sermons. He was a captivating speaker. He was also a tremendous author. Most of his life he was trying to make money by writing things for other people, writing books for people, maybe tombstones for people, writing all kinds, anything he could write for people. He, he was a man of tremendous misfortune. Uh, he talks about the woman that he wanted to marry. She, he loved her dearly and how she became sick. And she became so sick that they decided they couldn't get married. So he decided to go to her, and uh, it talks about a, a tragic moment in which she realizes that she's going to die before she can marry him. And she gives him a hug, and he is, you know, how could he hug her? We're not married yet. And she says, I'd rather, you know, something along that, it's my chance. I'm going to leave this world anyways. I don't want to go to the next world before giving you a hug. He ends up marrying a different lady who makes his life miserable, mamash, for the rest of his life. He has children with her. Uh, each one of them dies tragic deaths. One is murdered. One, he has a son-in-law who he's in love with. And this son-in-law is also uh, dies a tragic death. He had a gambling issue with money. Always was losing the money that he had. But Rabbi Aliyah de Modena was one of the great Chachamim of that generation. Whether or not he was a perfect person, had struggles in his life. He authored a work called Ari Nohem. Ari Nohem, I have it here somewhere. Or I don't. I thought I had it here. Irene Nohem is a book which she wrote against the Kabbalah. Rabbi, can you just double check that I'm not crazy? Is it sitting on my desk, perhaps? Is there a book, Irene Nohem? It looks just like this. If it's not there, that's fine. One second. No, it's okay. It's for sure going to find it after the class. Here, I found it. It's right here. Ari Nohem. He writes in the beginning of the book that he's dealing with Kabbalah only because one of his students forced him to do it. He lived from 1571 to 1648. This book was printed in 1840. So many years later, this book was printed. Uh, and he writes, he's writing this to his students who's adamant that Kabbalah is true and that his rabbi just doesn't know anything. That's why he doesn't believe in Kabbalah. And he writes here that he's also writing it for his son-in-law. He says, My son-in-law, a beautiful son, there's a play on words here. 
כבוד מורנו הרב יעקב מן הלוויים, רבי יעקב דה ליבייט, נבון דעת וכולל בלימודים, was a brilliant man, a scholar, אוי ואבוי על שברי כי לקחו אלוהים מאיתי במיטב שנותיו. Woe to me that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took away my precious son-in-law in his prime years. And he writes an entire book here, step by step by step, trying to disprove Kabbalah, disprove the Zohar. He claims the Mekubalim are audacious people who have terrible things to say about the Rambam and rabbis that are greater than they could ever be. This book created a huge commotion. There are many reactionary works that were written back to this book. So for example, if you've heard of Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg, yeah, you heard of him before? Was an Italian Mekubal. Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg, wrote a response back. It's called the Imat Mafgia. He writes back to the roaring lion, the Arinohem. He lived from 1824 to 1900. This book was printed in 1858. And he writes back to Rabbi Darya de Modena, answering each one of his points. And to the first point of Rabbi Yehuda of Modena saying, how dare the, the Mekubalim speak so harshly against the non-Kabbalistic rabbis? He said, Rabbi, if you are a Mekubal and you believe that you knew the secrets of the universe, and there were certain rabbis that were adamant that they don't want to know about the creator of the world, what would you say about them? He said, it's not fair to judge those rabbis wrong because they spoke harshly when, when they believed that they were fighting the fight of God. And he ends up uh, saying he got the book of Arinohem when he was a young man, and he didn't feel he was ready to write a response until later in life. He ended up penning a two-volume response back uh, retorting the claims or refuting the claims trying to of the Arinohem another rabbi who wrote three different responses to the book of Arinohem is none other than Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato the Ramchal I have a copy here I was waiting for years to get this book uh, this book I found it's a 1910 edition of the book this book is 111 years old uh, this book is written by a student of the Ramchal. The Ramchal told him what to respond back to the book Arinohem. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutato, it's called Milchemet uh, Moshe, the war of Moshe against the Arinohem, in which he attempts here to prove that everything that Arinohem wrote against Kabbalah is wrong. And these wars you're seeing, it's the 1800s, early 1900s. Rabbi de Modena wrote this book some 300 years before, and the Jews are still fighting about what he wrote. This is how much the wars around Kabbalah divided the sages of the Jewish people. Perhaps the most recent episode of fighting about Kabbalah, and with this we'll end today's shiur, is what happened in Yemen at the turn of the century. And I have an entire shiur on this. So if you listen to my first shiur in the Rambam series, Rambam Mishneh Torah, class one, I give an extensive hour and a half history on this, what happened in Yemen, what exactly went on. But in short, if you'll just see the sizes and the words that are used in these volumes, I think you'll understand for yourself just how much the Jewish world blew up when the following happened. There was a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Yichye Kafech, or we just say Kapach in Hebrew today, even though that's not the proper pronunciation of his name. Uh, he was also known as the Mori Hayashish, the old Chacham. He lived in Yemen in the capital city of Sana'a from the year 1850 to 1931. He's the grandfather of the Rabbi Yosef Kapach that we read his Mishneh Torah in our uh, Shiviti Kola. Yes? So this is the grandfather. The grandfather had a son, Rabbi David. Rabbi David, uh, essentially, he died, and Rabbi Yichye raised Rabbi Yosef 
almost as his own son, the grandfather and the grandson. It's a beautiful relationship that those two Chachamim had with each other. Around the year 1914, the Rabbi started writing a book called Milchemot Hashem, The Wars of Hashem. The purpose of this book, I'll read to you from the cover page. The book's titled, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. And the publisher of the book writes the following words. Sefer Milchemet Hashem, the book Milchemet Hashem. Hamodia derech amitut yichudoit barach al piyatoram b'farsheha. Shows the oneness of the Creator as it is written in the Tanakh and in the commentaries of the Tanakh. Our rabbis, Bamishnah, Batalmud, Bavli, Yerushalmi, Midrashei Chazal, all of the rabbinic texts that we have. Like our genius rabbis, the Rav Sadia Gaon, Rabbeinu Bachye, in his Chovot HaLevavot, Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, in his songs and in his Kuzari, the Rambam, Vismag, Uval HaIkarim, Rabbi Yosef Albo, in his Sefer HaIkarim, the way we believe in the oneness of the Creator, the way all Jews have believed. And that we have an obligation not to deviate from the path of our rabbis. Not of the Tanakh, not of the Mishnah, not of the Talmud, not of the Rav We will never deviate from these teachings. You should know, my dear reader, he says, you'll not, you will not understand this book unless you read it and study it well. All of it. Because the author, Rabbi he spent his nights and his days He spent his life, days and days and days, writing this book with solid proofs. And essentially this book is a conversation, at least in the beginning between a rabbi and his student about the forgery, which is the Zohar, and how the Zohar and the Kabbalah directly contradict everything written in the Talmud and in Halakha, and it brings beliefs into the Jewish people that should never be believed. This book, Milchamot Hashem, though it was written in Yemen, was published in Jerusalem, and that created a disaster in Jerusalem, which then blew back into Yemen. The Yemenite rabbis already had their own struggles with Rabbi Chekafich and his own Bet Midrash and the things that he did there. But this went over the top. The students of Rabbi Chekafich were now on a hunt against anything that was Kabbalistic, that had uh, permeated their Sidu, permeated their customs, had influenced their community, and they were going to free their community, the Yemenite community, from the invasion of the Kabbalists of Tzvat, including Maran Rabbi Yosef Cairo, to some extent, and to revert back to the original Rambam understanding of Judaism. This didn't go over very well, not with the rabbis in Yemen, who ended up putting him in prison. Rabbi Kafich was imprisoned, his health was greatly diminished. Again, you find violence. Violence is always real, physical violence is always at the center of these debates. They're not debates, they're literal wars. What happens is that in Yerushalayim, a book is printed, a response to Milchemet Hashem, called Emunat Hashem, the belief in God. The book is this thick, so I don't know if you can see how thick that book is. And this book is an attempt to respond back to the writings of Rabbi Chekafich. Uh, this book was printed in 1937 or 1938. I don't have an exact date, so it's somewhere in that year. 
and it says here that the book Emunat Hashem, Asher Hechziku Giborim Vanchei Milchama Milchamta Shel Torah, that the warriors of Hashem's Torah, they Chokmat Haemet, the scholars of Kabbalah, they wrote Shuvot Borot, clear-cut answers. Shechibro Al Asefer Anikra Milchemet Hashem, which is there to respond back to the wars of Yichia Ben Shlomo Kafich. In the second printing of this book, the printer added two sentences at the bottom of the page that I don't believe were there when the book was first printed. This book is printed again quite recently in Israel. And it says the following, Hasever Hazeh, this book was, Yatzal Le'or was published, Neged Yichye Kafich, against, they don't even call him Rabbi, against Yichye Kafich. Who dared speak ill of the Zohar and the Kabbalah. And his grandson. Who continues in his way. It's the Yosef Kafich of our generation. Passed away. Notice he doesn't call them Rabbi. He doesn't call Chacham. In fact, throughout the whole introduction of the book, the author of this book just calls him the Chutzpan. The, the one with Chutzpan. The, the brazen one. Uh, and he lays out here Rabbi Yechia Kafach's main oppositions to the Zohar. The first of them, that the Mukubalim only go after the Zohar. The two, that they worship idols. Three, that Rabbi Yechia Kafach accuses the Mukubalim that the Zohar is a forgery. Four, that the Zohar denigrates the things that are written in the Talmud. That five, the Zohar comes from the nations of the world and not from the Jewish people. Six, that the Kabbalists have created God into a form. They have his body. They've turned God from a, into a physical being. Seven, that they've separated him up into many parts, like we mentioned, even worse than the Christians. Eight, that they attribute all kinds of sexual deeds to the Creator. Nine, that they're involving themselves in things they're not allowed to involve themselves about the Creator of the universe. And ten, that they don't believe that the world was created from nothing, and essentially this author goes out, and essentially the rabbis who signed on this book, if I'll tell you their names, the rabbis who, who agreed to this book are all rabbis that you know. So if that's Rabbi Yaakov Meir, the Rishon Letzion, the rabbi of Rav Uziel, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Herzog, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, Rav Uziel is signed on this book, Rav Yofet Tzvi Dushinsky, Rav David Jungreis, Rav Pinchas Epstein, Rav Avram Yitzchak Kohen Kuk, Rav Yaakov Moshe Charla. Uh, this is a Rav Hadaye, the Sfaradim, Rav Cheskei Shabtai. Essentially, these are the the up the the top notch rabbis of Eretz Israel are writing a book against Rabbi Chekapach. Essentially, they are calling him a heretic and his students heretics for their lack of belief in the Oral Torah, meaning in the Zohar. Rabbi Chekapach is not willing to let this blow over silently. And so he issues one book, at least it's the last book that I have my hands on. And it's a little contrast called Amal Verot Ruach, V'charamot Tshuvatam. He's recording all the charamot, all the bands of excommunication that were sent out against him. And Rabbi Yechikavach, after quoting all of those rabbis, he starts the paragraph with the following words. He says, Tshuvat Dayanei Dechatzatzta Dirushalayim Harshumim Lamala. My response to the Dayanei Chatzatzta, the Dayanim of Chatzatzta, who of Yerushalayim, who wrote above. If you want an exact definition of the word Chatzatzta, 
Marcus Jastrow, in his Talmudic dictionary, defines Chatzatstra as the following. It's based on Bavabata. Untrained judges who arbitrate from ignorance of the law. So he is writing to the, all of these Chachamim in Yerushalayim, Rav Kook, Rav Uziel, Rav Yaakov Meir, that they are Dayanei de Chatzatzta. They are rabbis, untrained judges who don't know anything about Halakha. That's what he calls them. So this war of words goes in more than one direction. Yes, that's it. And he starts off his writings in a poetic fashion, almost like one of the prophets in the three weeks that we read their Haftarah, uh, when the Ben Midash is destroyed. How did Jerusalem, the faithful city, become disloyal like a prostitute? These are the words of the prophets. Righteousness used to rest in Yerushalayim, and now only murderers are in Yerushalayim. With all kinds of excommunications that do not make HaKadosh Baruch Hu or those who fear Him happy. They don't even begin to understand the damage they're causing. They're smiting the righteous ones incorrectly. He said, we who are the students, we who spend our days and nights studying Torah, and prayer and study, we are those who are faithful to the original text of the Jewish people. We study them and we teach them and we observe them and we do them. We are servants of the Torah to make sure that it will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. He says, we do this all in the spirit of the Talmud and our Chachamim. And then he goes on to accuse these rabbis. How dare you excommunicate us before you hear us out, before you listen to us, before you allow us to present our arguments properly, to sign a book, a polemic against us, he goes on a tirade, it's, a, it's an entire kuntres against Chachmei Rushanaim. And Abodaya will tell you that this didn't end in the generation of Yichai Kapach. Even after he dies, when Rabbi Yosef Kapach makes Aliyah to Israel, he finds himself in a terrible situation. Merkaz Rav Kuk, Rav Kuk doesn't want to accept him because he comes from the notorious family of anti-Kabbalists. Do you know how he gets into Yeshivan Merkaz Rav Kuk? Anyone remember that shiur? Who's learning Mishnah Torah with me? Isn't there like um, something about Rav Kuk that will allow him to spy that he comes from... Uh, Rav Kuk had a student called Rabbi David Hanazir, the Nazarite, Rabbi David. It was also a Mekubal in the realm of Rav Kuk, and he said, I'm going to interview this young man. He interviewed Rav Kapach for hours, and he was so impressed with his knowledge of Torah, he said, this man has to be in our yeshiva. Not only can he, he has to be in our yeshiva, and that's how Rav Kapach ended up in Rav Kuk's yeshiva of Merkaz Rav Kuk. Um, but that didn't stop. It didn't stop when they persecuted him, when he was a rabbi in the chief rabbinate, and they persecuted his Talmidim. And the truth is that his main Talmid today, Rabbi Dr. Ratzon Arusi, he doesn't like to talk about this. I've seen people ask him questions. And he says, it's a thing of the past. It does not relevant to today. We've solved all those problems. I think Rabbi Ratzon Aussi is just a good man who doesn't want to drag everybody back into episodes of the past. But I don't think that anything here was finished. It kind of just stopped for the moment until the next time these things will be woken up. The last element of today's shiur is the utter disdain that the academic world has for Kabbalah or for things like Kabbalah. Uh, two stories that I found in an article by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin. Um, 
in his entry in Jewish literacy. He writes here about Gershom Shalom. If you've heard of Gershom Shalom, he's one of the most famous scholars of Kabbalah and academia, was. And uh, Gershom Shalom in Hebrew University, he was not necessarily an observant Jew. And they asked him why, well, what attracted him to Kabbalah? He shared the following story. I'm reading it to you. He said, my decision to study Jewish mysticism came the day I visited the home of a famous German rabbi, a person with a reputation for scholarship in the Kabbalah. Seeing on his shelf some mystical texts with intriguing titles, I had with all the enthusiasm of youth asked the rabbi about them. This junk the rabbi had left in me? I should waste time reading nonsense like this? It was then that I decided here was a field in which I could make an impression. If this man can become an authority without reading the text, then what might I become if I actually read the books? So that was his attitude and that's how he ended up in the realm of academia of Kabbalah. Um, Professor Saul Lieberman, Rabbi Saul Lieberman of the Jewish Theological Seminary, was the known uh, Talmud scholar there. If you want to understand a little more of the life of Rabbi Saul Lieberman, I highly recommend the work Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox by Rabbi Mark Shapiro. It's a very short book. You can finish it in, in a day or two if you read it uh, quickly. In an introduction to a lecture that Shalom delivered at the seminary, Rabbi Lieberman said that several years earlier, some students asked to have a course here in which they could study Kabbalistic texts. He had told them that it was not possible, but if they wished, they could have a course on the history of Kabbalah. For at a university, Lieberman said, it is forbidden to have a course in nonsense. But the history of nonsense? That is scholarship. Now, by the way, my feeling about academia in general is that this is the case. You know, nonsense is one thing, but the history of nonsense, you could write books about it. Uh, I only bring those examples to show you that this is something that has been going on up until today. I have a colleague of mine, a dear friend of mine, who when I asked about, he's, a, he's a, an old school Tamil Chacham, so he's one of those Chachamim that you can go to him and have a Pesach Halakha in every area of Halakha you wanted to ask. He was he studied by some of the earlier Chachamim of the last generation. And he once shared with me and with his students that in his opinion, the Rambam's Moren Vuchim, I'm quoting right now, is a weed in the garden of Hashem. It doesn't belong. The Rambam is so off the charts when it comes to his beliefs, it doesn't belong anywhere in Judaism. And when I pressed him about the Zohar and the authorship of the Zohar, he said something interesting. He claimed that even though the Zohar may not have been written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he is adamant that it contains inside of it all of the organic, natural beliefs the Jewish people always had about the creator of the universe. So what that Rabbi Moshe de Leon wrote it down? So what that somebody else wrote it down? But these are the beliefs and that's why so many Mukubalim jumped on that bandwagon. And I know Chachamim that will tell you the exact opposite. That Kabbalah doesn't have anything to do with them. They want to have nothing to do with it. They want to know about it. They believe it to be one of the most tragic episodes in Jewish history. One of the most tragic interactions in Jewish history. Where do I stand? That's a fantastic question. I already told you the beginning of the class. I'm not going to share that with you. Rather, I'll tell you the following. The following. This is not me dancing around an issue. I think if I summarized the attitudes towards the Zohar in, in the last generation of Chachamim that I respect, so you have, for example, Ravichai Kafech, who's adamant that the Zohar is a Christian work that came to bring paganism to the Jewish people. You have, on the other hand, rabbis like uh, Rabbi Ashlag, Rabbi Ashlag, the Bala Sulam and the Zohar. He was of the opinion, he wrote, that if you would tell him that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Zohar, he would believe you that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote the Zohar. That's how holy of a book it is. 
Rabbi Yosef Masas writes in his Otsar Mikhtavim that anyone who reads the Zohar is with, with open eyes will be aware of the dozens and dozens of things that are in the Zohar that make you raise your eyebrows, that are alarming. He says, and for him, what he's willing to accept is that he'll quote from the Zohar, but that the book of the Zohar, Yad Zarim Shaltuba, that the hands of foreigners have permeated the Zohar. You read the books like Milchamot Hashem. There are sentences in the Zohar quoted from the Tanakh that are not in our Tanakh. There are words that are used there that are not found. There are rabbis that lived after Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that are quoted in the Zohar. If you ask some of Kubalins, because he knew the future. There are prob- the Aramaic of the Zohar is not the Aramaic of the time period in which the Zohar should have been written. But I didn't come to stick my head here in Kabbalah. I will tell you the following. The Rambam, who at the end of the day is our greatest teacher. The Rambam writes the following words in his introduction to Shemona Prakim, his introduction to Jewish psychology. He says, Kabel Accept truth from whoever says the truth. I think that this character trait is missing in the Jewish world today. The Rambam was using that in the context of Jews not willing to hear wisdom from non-Jews. So he decided not to quote any non-Jewish sources because he knew that people would not accept them. But he said the truth is that anybody who speaks truth, you have to accept their truth. All of the Chachamim of our generations that were real Chachamim, they always dance on this fine line. Who to accept truth from, who not to accept truth from. Just yesterday I was reading the Ma'am Lo'ez, which is a, a popular folk work of Sephardic rabbis on, on the Tanakh. And there I see in the footnote, which, which rabbi are they quoting as a source? This Chacham from Turkey is quoting Naftali Svaraton. Naftali Svaraton, I taught you about him recently. He was one of the contemporaries of Moses Mendelssohn, one of the early reformists in Germany. What are the Turkish Chachamim quoting him for? Because I can respect some scholarship in the world without agreeing to everything, without buying into the whole package. People have accused me of being a post-Gerush Sephardi, a post-exile of Spain Sephardi. That's fine. By the way, if I'm in the category of Maran Habit Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, if I can be in the category of, uh, of um, uh, the Chida and the Ben Ishchai and Rav Uziel and Rav Masast and Rabbi Chaim David Halavi, if I belong to the camp of these unfortunate post-exile Sephardim, so I'm very proud to be part of the camp of the post-exile Sephardim. What I will tell you is the following, that in our Ben Amidash, Dabble in Kabbalah, don't dabble in Kabbalah. When it comes to Halakha, when it comes to Tanakh, to Mishnah, to Talmud, to Rambam, to Shukran Aruch, we study those things exactly the way we study them. Everything else is for you to dabble on your side, but we don't ever have a scenario in which we're choosing something that's written in the Zohar over something that's written in the Talmud. And I believe that Rabbi Shalom Asas said it best. Rabbi Shalom Asas writes in his Shalot V'Chuvot, um, I want to tell you it's written in Tivuot Shemesh, but it could also be in his Shemesh again. I don't remember which one right now. He writes that in Morocco, the practice was quite standard. Mikubalim, they deal with Kabbalah. And the rest of us Jews, we just deal with Judaism. So we deal with the Tanakh, and the Mishnah, and the Tamud, the Rambam, Shukhan, Aruch. And if you're a Mikubal, do whatever Mikubalim do. But for the rest of us, we don't do that. Rabbi Shemuel Vital, the son of uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Shemuel, the, the son of Rabbi Chaim Vital. He writes just as much that the Mikubalim have no right to force those who are not Mekubalim to adopt any of their views. In fact, Chacham Faur himself writes about rabbis like the Arizal. We even believe he quotes Rabbi Chaim Palaji. That their stance was 
that Kabbalah is not something you can force on people who don't believe in it. And so here, I'm telling you not parve, I'm not telling you neutral, I'm telling you that there were wars, real wars, unfortunate wars in Jewish history, wars that ended up killing people, wars that put people in prison, wars that destroyed Jewish communities, wars that split communities and families down the middle, surrounding Kabbalah. And much of that stuff that we haven't dealt with, like all of the other classes we've given previously, that stuff still needs to be dealt with. It still needs to be talked about. Because if not, it's in danger, where we're in danger of it repeating itself. I have to leave you today for this, but I want to wish you all a beautiful new week. Thank you so much for learning with me. I will open up the floor to any questions that you might have, but I hope that in this short amount of time that we had together, that I've at least illustrated a little bit to you the spread of Kabbalah and the controversies and notable personalities in those controversies that caused the Jewish people to split. And as Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin says, that whenever we cause a split in the wall of Israel, the wall of Israel becomes weakened. The infrastructure of the Jewish people becomes weakened as we fragment and as we fragment and as we fragment. And the Tzarenu, uh, I pray for a day when the Jewish people can sit around the same table, uh, each one with their own understandings and each one with their own teachings and each one with their own Torah. And B'zalat Hashem, we'll see a day when HaKadosh Baruch Hu returns himself to us and we'll return ourselves to Eretz Yisrael. B'zalat Hashem, in Baruch.